we're going to move into uh, into the teaching part of our service. And so we'll hear from each other. We're going to read scripture together. Um, John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 is the passage that will be preached on this morning. And we do it call and response style here at Grace. So um, in honor and respect to God's holy word, if you're able to stand, please do with me. Your part will be on the screen in bold. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Breaker, yeah. There we go. Another good morning, and uh, just as we're as we're settling in here, I want to give a shout out to a few folks. Uh, shout out to our tech team who have been making miracles for 16 months, uh, but particularly this week. Uh, my understanding is that it could have been a, an an all nighter on Tuesday, uh, but they finished early. Uh, as in just many, many hours and not all of the hours. And so thank you, team. I also want to give a shout out to all of the folks who came yesterday and helped uh, transform all of these spaces that had really been mothballed and turned into warehouses uh, for the last year or so into a beautiful space again for us to worship. And it's good to be together. And we're glad you're here in whatever way uh, you want to join us. We're in the second week of a summer series we're calling uh, I Am, uh, Jesus in His Own Words. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this statement, I Am, seven different times and uh, gives us an illustration uh, of the claims He makes about Himself. And today, He says in the passage we read, I am the light of the world. I want uh, to begin by asking you to try to imagine a scene and uh, the scene is, uh, I thought maybe it's, you know, it's a hundred degrees outside. Let's imagine it's Christmas. It's cool outside. It's cool. And you're, um, you're with your family. You've gathered for whatever the, you know, Christmas tradition is in your, in your family. You've come to a traditional Christmas worship, uh, Christmas Eve worship service. Um, at Grace this last year, Christmas Eve was our first service in the big circus tent that's now out on the lawn, but it was on, right here on the, on the parking lot, and uh, it was after dark, and we had this Christmas Eve service, and, and our tradition has become that on Christmas Eve, we gather, we sing Christmas carols, we light candles, 
and sing about uh, the, the light of the world coming. We read familiar passages from the Gospels about angels singing praises and shepherds watching their flocks by night and uh, a baby born to a virgin in a feed trough. And so I want you to imagine that scene and uh, you're there, you've got your best Christmas sweater on, your grandkids are around you or all the grandkids are with you, or with grandpa and grandma. And um, the guy next to you stands up in the middle of the service. It's just, so you've just finished singing um, O Little Town of Bethlehem. You've just finished singing that part where, you, where they say, um, yet in the dark street shineth the everlasting light. I thought about singing that for you, but I didn't. So they just sang that part. In the dark street shineth the everlasting light. And the guy next to you stands up right at that part in the service. And he says, I am the everlasting light. What's your next move? What do you think this guy's going to do next? What's his plan? Why did he decide to, to do this in the middle of the service? Uh, why did he take this moment to announce that what? He, he, he thinks he's the Messiah? Here's the scene in this part of the Gospel of John. John chapter 7 through 9. Uh, Jews from all over Israel have gathered in Jerusalem for a feast. They call it the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a it, it would have been a holiday full of traditions. You meet your family in Jerusalem. You have, uh, tra- you know, you, you do your traditional things. It would, have been, uh, it would have been a holiday similar to the way that many of us would celebrate Christmas or Easter. Uh, gather with families for a seven-day festival full of traditions, songs that you'd sung every year, and passages of Scripture that would be read retelling the story of how God had tabernacled with his people. The story, that means dwelt with his people. And that was the story of how when God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt, he was with them. And, it, and the story is that his presence with, was with his people in the wilderness. It was, a, it was a bright cloud by day and a glowing pillar of fire by night. It, and and, and the, the light from that fire lit the darkness as Israel walked through the wilderness. And so I want you to imagine, you know, they're reading that, they're reading that passage, they're singing those songs, and then right about that part in the service, Jesus stands up in the midst of everything. And in John 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if you're a Pharisee, right? You're a Bible teacher, an Old Testament Jewish Bible teacher. You run the synagogue. Like, what's your next move? How do you respond if you're one of Jesus' disciples? You're like, this was going well until this. How are you going to play the next few moments? Let's be clear about what Jesus is representing himself as. The Old Testament has talked about the presence of God as light and God's protection and guidance and salvation as light in the midst of darkness from the very beginning. In fact, some of those first words are, let there be light, and there was light. 
Uh, Psalm, one, Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 19 says, the word, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And one of those passages that we read every Christmas, right? Isaiah chapter 9, people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Light's a reoccurring theme in the Gospel of John that we're reading this morning. It begins, Olivia read for us earlier, that the Gospel of John begins with this description of Jesus as the Word of God in the flesh. And it says, in the beginning was with the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and in Him was life, and that life was the light of humanity. Later it says that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. But you don't have to be steeped in sort of biblical metaphor. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to understand what Jesus, what kind of claim Jesus is making. Let's just think about what light does, right? Uh, what does light do in the world? The light of our world reveals danger, helps us locate the things that we need. It warms our planet and makes it possible for life to exist. It allows us to recognize what is real and what is true. And it brings things out of the shadows. Things that are hidden come to light. And so in John 8, 12, when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, whether you are religious or not, it shouldn't be a stretch uh, to understand that he's making a pretty fantastic claim. And a claim that will probably disrupt everybody's Feast of Tabernacles festivities. He's claiming to be essential. He's claiming to be central. He's claiming to be life-giving. Religious Jews who would have made up most of the audience that heard him say this, the crowd at the Feast of the Tabernacles, would understand that he was claiming to be God's provision, God's illumination for uh, understanding spiritual truth, that he was claiming to be salvation from sin, the salvation that God had promised all of humanity, not just Jews, but everybody, Jew and Gentile, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free. And then what Jesus does next is something, uh, he does something and he does it in a way that only Jesus could do. Uh, a way that immediately illuminates uh, the, the ways that we respond to the light. Uh, he immediately illustrates how people react to the light and what it looks like to be transformed by the light of the world. And so this morning from the passage, uh, John chapter 9, I just want to talk about two things, reacting to the light of the world and being transformed by the light of the world. Let's think about how the world reacts to light. So, same scene. Tents on the parking lot. It was Christmas of 2020, Christmas Eve. Many of you were there. Um, it was our first worship service in the tent, this big circus tent that we just figured out how to put up. We've got lights strung up in there. And I found it to be a, is it funny that I'm like reminiscing about the tent that we're <laughs> inside? It's we don't miss it. Okay. Um, I found it to be this incredibly comprehensive experience on Christmas Eve, right? We're, 
we're not just talking and reading a passage about people walking in darkness, seeing a great light. We're literally out in the parking lot in the dark, holding candles and using them to see the lyrics we're singing. We're, we aren't just talking about good news of great joy for all people, but all kinds of people are literally like walking by and waiting and looking and listening, making their way on uh, Christmas Eve out on the street in the dark. And, uh, and there was lots of character to this event, including at least one uh, a struggling and apparently homeless man whose boisterous and sometimes profane outbursts uh, challenged the responses of the people in the tent. And, and if you were there, it was a beautiful thing. I mean, not everybody adds an F-bomb to their hallelujah, but everybody heard it, right? And then we were like, what do we do? What, what happens now? We can see at least three responses, the ways that people responded to Jesus's claim in, chapter nine, in, in John chapter nine. When he says, I am the light of the world, there are three responses that we and people all around us, really from the beginning of time, we ourselves use when we're confronted by a difficult truth, when we're, when we're, uh, when we're cornered in uh, a wrongdoing, when, when the deeds that we have done in darkness are brought to light. Um, at least one of three reactions. So the, the first I call reject and destroy. Jesus announces in John uh, 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, which appropriately scandalizes everyone who's listening, the synagogue folks, the, the Pharisee types, the teachers of the law. But rather than engage and evaluate, rather than investigate the claim that this guy is making, even set up an inquiry of the way that their law, the Torah, would have instructed them to do, instead they immediately reject and ridicule and literally attack Jesus for the claims that he makes. Uh, by the end of the chapter, John says that they picked up stones to stone him. Now, we don't know all of the reasons why this was their response, but we kind of do. Like, we know how people respond. We, this happens to us, and we do this to other people. We know that some of these folks had a lot to lose if Jesus was the Messiah, they had an ideology and a worldview and a system that helped them answer all the questions that they had and it helped keep them in the lifestyle that they were living. They were many of them in positions of influence and power. Uh, many of them, uh, if, if in fact the Messiah had come, would lose wealth or comforts. And so we know how this goes, right? We're familiar with this response. We live in a world where if you don't like the message that somebody is sending, then you destroy the messenger on Facebook right? You destroy them on social media. You attack the messenger. If you get caught in a wrong, if you get caught doing wrong, then you lash out and defend yourself by destroying somebody else or attacking the character of someone else. Saving face and salvaging pride, is, it seems like, is always worth it, even if it means denying clear truth, destroying people's reputations. We want to turn out the light so that we can get back to what we were doing in the dark. Reject and destroy. Here's a second response. Jesus' followers have a different response to the passage. As we begin, it says, as he passed, 
And it's not clear, but it sounds as if uh, this is kind of the tail end of that same episode. And then maybe as moments after this confrontation with the teachers of the law and the scribes, Jesus and his disciples are passing along and the disciples notice a man who we're told was born blind. And suddenly their feast of tabernacles has become a very comprehensive experience, right? Here is a man literally walking in darkness. And so they say, Jesus, you're the light of the world. Shed some light on this situation. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I want to be careful here as we talk about this because I think that they ask a really important question that, we, that we're all going to need to process. But before we process that, I want us to notice what the disciples just did. They're doing that thing where they're talking about somebody in the third person and the guy's right there and they're acting like he doesn't exist. He's standing right there and they're talking as if he isn't even there. They, they get so caught up in the theoretical implications of Jesus being the light of the world that they're oblivious to real need right under their noses. This guy can't see. He needs help. This is another standard reaction. Uh, we hear truth, we hear a claim, and uh, we, we set about to debate it or to debunk it or to evaluate it. And that's essential, really essential that we do that. But if we do those things and that becomes the only thing that we do, it becomes our excuse uh, for never taking action but just remaining in a world of philosophy, never risking anything uh, in our lives if this thing is actually true, risking anything for Christ, uh, then really our debate and debunk has just become another way, another hiding place that we've found to hide from the light. With that said, I think part of the reason that this man's suffering seems so unurgent uh, to the disciples, so almost invisible, is because they've got bad theology. Uh, in, they've got incomplete thinking about God. They assume that sin and suffering are always connected. And in one sense, they're not wrong. Uh, the, the testimony of the Bible is that uh, once upon a time, there were no thorns or brambles. There was no sickness or death. There was no conflict, no broken relationships, no decay or disease. None of that existed before there was sin. Um, suffering in general in the world is a result of what the Bible calls the fall. That's the story in Genesis 3 of humanity's rebellion against God, beginning with Adam and Eve's disobedience and this insistence that we have our own way uh, rather than God's. And so in a way, the disciples are not wrong. And yet, as soon as you insist that any and every individual's suffering, um, every individual's misfortune, every individual's sickness, it... Uh, as soon as you insist that there is a direct connection between misfortune, suffering, and sickness and somebody's individual sin, you're going beyond what the Bible teaches. There are plenty of examples, certainly, in the Scripture and in each of our lives in which there is a clear connection between our choices, our mistakes, 
our misdeeds and the consequences that we suffer. Uh, we, can, we, we know that there are examples in Scripture and in our lives of a clear connection. Uh, however, there is plenty of sickness, plenty of suffering, and plenty of injustice that is just the result of the brokenness of creation and nature, the brokenness of systems in society, the result of the influence of what the scripture calls the powers and principalities in the world. There's evil in the world, and it's causing destruction. And yet, uh, this continues to be, for many of us, and from time to time, a go-to excuse to let ourselves off the hook when it comes to doing anything about how much suffering is happening right underneath our noses. We see difficulty and we say, oh, they, they're, they're poor, they must be lazy. Their kids are wayward because they must be terrible parents. We also apply this bad theology to our faith. If you aren't healed, you didn't pray hard enough. In an essay on biblical justice, Pastor Tim Keller says, biblically speaking, we are finally responsible for all of our sins, but not for, our, not for all of our outcomes. The Bible does not teach that your success or failure is wholly due to individual choices. Poverty, for example, can be brought on by personal failure, but it also may exist because of environmental factors such as famine or plague or sheer injustice. And so we're not in complete control of our outcomes. There's a bigger picture. We didn't earn every blessing that we have, and they didn't deserve every hardship that they have endured. And some of it is just a part of living in a dark world, a fallen world that needs light. And so Jesus says to his disciples' question, it's not that this man or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him in spite of whatever genetic situation. Or we don't know exactly why this guy was born blind, but it's important that we realize that he showed up that way and Jesus, spreads, Jesus sheds light. It says that he does this crazy thing. He spit on the ground and made mud with the spit. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. So for Jesus, being, announcing that he was the light of the world, being the light of the world was not about winning. He wasn't there to dominate his uh, detractors. And it was not about a truth that was meant to be curated and argued over somewhere out in, uh, in, in the philosophical world. It was about, he says, working the works of him who sent me. Bringing help and hope and purpose and healing to a world that is stumbling around in the darkness. He literally, this third response I'm calling get muddy and make a difference. Jesus literally gets his hands dirty to help bring light into somebody's world. Jesus, uh, he literally gets right to work and the work of God through Jesus is exactly what Jesus claims when he says that he's the light of the world. Salvation from the darkness of sin and the suffering that it brings. That's the work of God. 
The work that Jesus came to do, salvation from the darkness of sin and the suffering that it brings. And how does he do that? How does he bring that salvation? John chapter 6, 28 to 30, when Jesus was asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Salvation comes through belief. It doesn't come from what you do and how well you do it. So uh, we're freed from having to justify and defend what we've done, justify ourselves and the, and the good works that we've done. It doesn't, um, it, isn't, it doesn't come as some impersonal truth floating somewhere out there to be discussed and debated. Salvation came from God in Jesus, the light of the world. And we receive it by believing. Believing that he not only came and lived truthfully and rightly, which none of us could do, but he died unjustly, an innocent man taking on the punishment for the guilty, you and me. And when he rose from the dead, he defeated the darkness of death and sin. And so we who believe can live in that kind of life, we can live that kind of life and that kind of freedom and that kind of hope by believing that he is the light of the world. So, at that Christmas service uh, under the tent, we, we ended the same way that we have for many years on Christmas Eve. Uh, we have, um, we've been reading the, the Christmas story, and when we read about uh, the birth of Christ, we light what we call the Christ candle, and symbolically, that candle burns on this table throughout the year. So we light it on Christmas Eve, and then the light of Christ uh, is burning amongst us as we worship. And on Christmas Eve, on the, at the end of the service, everyone has a candle in their hands and we sing Silent Night and somebody lights their candle off of the Christ candle and then the light gets passed around until everyone is um, singing Silent Night by candlelight. And the, the tent is once again full of light and then the service concludes and we're sent out, as it were, into a dark world with the light of Christ. Technical note, we actually make people extinguish their candle. But the point is that we're being sent. And here's what John says happens next. Jesus says to the guy, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing the man born blind is sent, and when he comes back, he's healed, saved from darkness. Now let's be clear. The go- uh, let's be clear uh, about what saved him. It's not magic spit mud. The point, the emphasis is not on the Jesus spit mud. Although the, illus- the symbolism is beautiful because remember that God took dust and clay and breathed life into it. Uh, but the point is not that it's magic mud and, it, and the point is not uh, that uh, there was magic in the pool. Like we should, if there was, we should all hop on a jet and get to this pool of Siloam, right? Because there's magic water there. But it's not in the mud and it's not in the pool. The, the healing is in Jesus, 
who heals him, breathing life into the dust, who offers his light in this man's darkness. Salvation comes through believing in Jesus. And the, the way that we can understand that this guy actually believed is that he did what Jesus told him to do. He believed, and so he goes and he washes as Jesus told him to wash, and he receives his sight, light in his dark world, and he is immediately sent out as a witness to what God has done in his life. The whole rest of the chapter is the story. Jesus kind of fades from the scene, and the rest of the chapter is the story of this guy giving testimony to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and saying, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. Jesus is the light of the world. Oh, they say, they say where is he? Who is he? And he even says, I don't know, because I never saw him. Not till the end of the chapter. The rest of the chapter is this guy sent out on a mission. This guy's life changed from searching around in the dark to being sent out on a mission to bring light to the world. 